What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Katie Burke, the Vice President of Culture and Experience at HubSpot. For those of you not familiar with HubSpot, they're an all-in-one inbound marketing software company. In addition to their growing financial success, the culture at HubSpot may be the topic they're most well-known for. Their Culture Code deck, which has been viewed almost 3 million times on SlideShare, contains the secret sauce behind the success at HubSpot. And when push comes to shove, Katie is the driving force behind the constant housekeeping of the HubSpot culture, although she says it's the employees who ultimately own it. In this episode, Katie talks about the shift of culture becoming the hard stuff versus the traditional view of it being the soft stuff in business, the importance of transparency in today's business environment, and we really do a deep dive into Glassdoor and how important it is for today's leaders to get very comfortable with reviewing and responding to your company's Glassdoor reviews. We also touch on how work-life balance is an outdated notion, how HubSpot hires for culture fit, not fires, hires for culture fit, and the one book that has had the biggest impact on Katie. (laughs) I gotta tell you, Katie is a freight train of energy. I really had a hard time keeping up, and I've got plenty of it myself. If you or your organization has any interest in culture, Katie's experience and insight is worth its weight in gold. Enjoy this episode with the one and only Katie Burke. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me today is Katie Burke, the Vice President of Culture and Experience at the one and only HubSpot. Katie, thank you so much for joining me. What a pleasure to have you on. Of course, it's a pleasure to be with you talking about one of my favorite topics. (laughs) And that would be culture. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess. That's exactly right. Culture and Beyonce are the two things I love talking about more than anything. <laughs> well, when it comes to Beyonce, I am uh, a neophyte, and that might be a bit aggressive. I don't know a whole heck of a lot, so we may need to actually stick to the culture aspect. Absolutely. I won't hold that against you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So, you know, one of the things that uh, as I was doing my research and getting familiar with you as an individual, you've had a, a really interesting uh, career at HubSpot so far, this role that you have today as serving as essentially the ambassador of culture and experience uh, at HubSpot is not where you started. Can you give us just a little bit of a sense of your journey at HubSpot up to this point? Of course. So I joined HubSpot originally um, to actually run our, our user groups, so to run a community of folks who love HubSpot globally. And shortly after I joined, uh, prior to going to business school at MIT Sloan, I worked for an agency and basically did all things marketing, communications, advertising, research, that sort of thing. And it became clear that in order for HubSpot to do what it wanted to do and reach our significant ambitions to become a public company, more people needed to understand kind of what we did, what we sold, and how we did it. So for example, if you were to ask people in Boston about HubSpot, they would have heard of HubSpot but could not explain what we actually did or sold. And so we were missing out on huge opportunities to build brand awareness because people knew we were a cool company and a cool brand but didn't understand what we actually did. And so I actually raised my hand and said I wanted to take over our communications team. And at the time, 
our CEO had written a blog post basically saying that PR was dead in a dying industry. And so it was certainly an unconventional time to raise your hand and say you wanted to run that team. But I just felt there was huge market opportunity in what we were going to do. And so I ran our external communications up through the IPO, including our roadshow deck, including our entire New York Stock Exchange negotiation experience, which is a whole lot of fun. Uh, and a whole lot of adrenaline, as you might imagine. I'm sure. And two things happened as a result of that work. Uh, the first thing that happened was I was fortunate that one of the first projects I worked on was running the launch of the Culture Code. So the Culture Code deck, for those not familiar, is HubSpot's commitment to how we think about work. And it was authored by our co-founder, Dharmesh Shah, and has now amassed over 2 million views on SlideShare. And basically, we sat down to kind of redefine what it meant to work and live at a next generation company and what it truly meant to be a HubSpotter. And when we did it at the time, the only other kind of culture deck that was truly well known out there is the Netflix culture deck, which should, of course, be required reading for anyone working in this field. And so we had big ambitions and obviously big shoes to fill. And so Darmesh and I worked really closely on sharing that story with the market. And the result of that experience was we spent a lot of time talking about what culture actually means, what it doesn't mean, what we stand for as a company, what autonomy means in practice, what values we were going to live. And he and I would geek out about that stuff nonstop. And so early on, I realized I had a passion for this space um, and a deep connection and commitment alongside Darmesh and what we could do with culture at HubSpot. The second thing that happened is as you're running an IPO roadshow, you craft your story, right? So you're telling the story you're going to share with the world, with your investors, with, uh, with Wall Street, that sort of thing. And as you might imagine, the natural inclination of bankers and lawyers is to focus entirely on the financials and the team and your total addressable market. And I think one of the coolest parts for me was seeing the degree to which investors were interested in the flywheel effect that our culture could and might create for us long term and really want to talk to us a lot about that as a differentiator. And so those two kind of incidents fundamentally informed my interest in culture long term. So after the IPO uh, concluded, Darmesh and Brian came to me and said, what do you think about running culture full time? And candidly, my first response was, thanks so much, but I'd rather not be unemployed in a year. I like my job um, because I just didn't know if there was enough work to be done. I didn't know if it was going to stay a priority after we went public. And frankly, uncertainty for almost anyone, I think, is scary, regardless of where you are in your career and being at a company you do truly and deeply love. Uh, so I took the leap two years ago. Ever since, I am certainly an unconventional HR executive, uh, but I feel really lucky that we're doing what we are doing and that we have the autonomy to create a new vision for what people and culture can mean at a public company. So this, this you know, sense of uncertainty that you had and, and fear about, wow, if I actually take this leap and, and be responsible for culture that maybe in a year I'll be out of a job. So as obviously that a fear is at least subsided uh, probably for quite some time. What is it that your role really consists of doing? Like, cause you talk about, uh, you know, being the, the keeper of the culture, the ambassador of the culture and wondering, well, what, what, what's involved in that? What, what do you do exactly? Yeah. It, it's like the office based question. What would you say you actually do here? <laughs> I was, I was concerned about that as well. Uh, the truth of the matter is that, I don't own our culture at HubSpot. Our employees do, and our candidates do, and our alumni do. They really set the tone and the vision. They keep our energy high. They hold us accountable. They hold me accountable. 
Uh, so the way that I think about it is I'm responsible for our employment brand globally. And when you're growing as fast as we are, especially internationally, that actually is, you know, fairly critical to the growth of your business. So, for example, we just opened our Tokyo office. And while we have a massive brand, employment brand in Boston, uh, and now in Dublin, where we have over 200 folks located, we don't have that in Tokyo. So how do you share your story in a way that feels authentic to Japanese culture, but also authentic to HubSpot culture? And so I work really closely with our recruiting team on thinking about planning for and launching new offices. Uh, and then once we have those new offices open, I spend a lot of time working with our employees on the ground there to understand what's working, what isn't and truly how we scale culture as a competitive advantage. So for example, our team runs um, every touch point of the employee experience. So when you think about the handoff between recruiting to onboarding to then becoming a successful employee, we spend a lot of time with all involved there making it feel truly welcoming. So one of the things that I do on my team is I hire a lot from the hospitality industry instead of traditional HR because we really want the employee experience to eventually end up similar to a guest experience at a high-end property. Um, and so from my perspective, we're rethinking all that, all of what that looks like. Uh, we also run some pretty key priorities for the company, which include our employee happiness survey, which we do once a quarter, our diversity and inclusion initiative, our nonprofit and community initiative, and a whole host of other great stuff. So I was wrong to be worried that there wasn't going to be enough work. As it turns out, when you're creating global scale, the soft stuff and kind of the gray areas of your business truly become the hard stuff. And so having someone whose job it is to fill in those gaps, I think, makes a big difference. So uh, let me take a step back just for a moment, because you had mentioned that you and Darmesh had spent a considerable amount of time really codifying the culture code, getting it right, leveraging Patty. Uh, work, uh, Patty's work, Patty McCord's work from Netflix and the work that they did. Um, I'm curious, Darmesh, he's a product guy. He's an engineer. And as a lay person on the outside looking in, I would go out on a limb and guess that most product people, most engineers, like culture's a bit of the farthest thing from their wheelhouse. They're thinking about how to make the product better. Uh, why was Dart like, how did he get so involved in this? And how did this become a passion for what I would assume would be a bit of like, as I mentioned, the furthest thing from his radar? It's, uh, it's a great question. So two fun facts about Darmesh. One is he's as good at writing content as he is at writing code. One of the things that he saw early on was that being a great storyteller as an entrepreneur and founder and using uh, his blog, so he had a startup blog, um, using his blog to share not just his vision for what HubSpot should become, but also his learnings from being a, a serial entrepreneur and successful angel investor. Uh, so he kind of understood early on that refining what that looks like and creating the power of a story was critical, and he worked around the clock to get better at it. And I think one of the things you'll see in the slide share um, for the culture code is that it's a true labor of love and reflective of just how good he is as a content creator. The second thing is I think in as much as Darmesh is the very stereotypical introvert and technologist at heart, and he absolutely is, small talk is his kryptonite. Um, but when you think about kind of someone like him, what he understood is in as much as the world is becoming more automated, more technical, and more data-driven, it's imperative that software becomes more human. 
And it's absolutely imperative that every element of our experience as a company, including the ones for our customers using our software, becomes more dynamic, more personal, more human. And I think he realized early that there was going to be a tendency to get to anonymity, lack of personalization, and that it was going to be very easy to not invest in this. And I think uh, you see and feel the labor of love when you read the document. I think the other thing to note is uh, Dharmesh is explicit in the culture code about the fact that he intentionally called it code. And the reason that he called it code is we refactor our code at HubSpot all the time to ensure that it's delivering on our customers' expectations. We do the same thing with our culture code. So unlike many other decks, where you ship it once and never edit it, never update it except to update dates or maybe a graphic or two. We revisit the culture code on a regular basis to ensure that it's still representative of who HubSpot is now and who we really want to be. So you'll notice on occasion there are updates published to the deck. Uh, there are actually There's a version number on the front page of the slide you can see for how many times it's actually been updated, um, which is a, a pro tip there. Um, but Darmesh really spends an inordinate amount of time making sure that that's still reflective of who we are as a company. And I think the fact that it's called code is a nice reflection of kind of the marriage of his two worlds in code and content. So you had, prior to joining HubSpot, you had a previous experience at a company called Athletes Performance, which is now called Exos. And they happen to be in our backyard in, uh, in, in the Phoenix area. Um, as I was doing my research on Exos and just wanting to get familiar with a little bit about them, one of the things that jumped out at me was the pillars that I, I think their philosophy revolved around, and that is mindset, nutrition, movement, and recovery. I'm curious, you having spent time there, did any of those pillars inform how you are incorporating those into culture? Do you think about mindset? Do you think about nutrition? Do you think about movement? Do you think about recovery as part of the necessary ingredients of a healthy culture at, at HubSpot? So uh, Exos is such an incredible company. I was lucky to spend time there. I think um, I wish, candidly, I wish tech in general spent more time thinking about health um, and the health of employees and the health of uh, its workplace on a regular basis. So we have a big program called Healthy at HubSpot uh, that I helped launch, and I certainly included learnings from my time at Exos in that. Um, but I think, candidly, the bigger influence on my experience at HubSpot is um, two things. One, Mark Verstegen, the founder of Exos, is a big believer in human potential and in unlocked human potential and what it can do for an organization and what it can do for a team and what it can do to win championships. And that's infectious. So if you spend any time, even if you go for a day to visit Exos, you feel the commitment that they put in to unleashing human potential and to making sure people achieve their their goals. And for me, that's a good reminder of, of um, two critical pieces of HubSpot culture. One, um, humans inherently require tender, loving care uh, to grow. And so I think we focus a lot of time on how we can grow revenue, how we can grow customers, and not enough time on how we grow people. And so that certainly informed how I think about things. The second thing is I think how you tell the story, how you coach people really matters. So one of the cool things about Exos is they actually use something called a DISC profile to help coach athletes and corporate wellness clients in the way that's most effective for them. So as you might imagine, if you were finishing sprints next to me and we're both kind of competing, 
um, one of us might go, gosh, you know, go get it. You need to get it. You need to be number one, that sort of thing. And one of us might need a more mechanical correction. So make sure that you're pulling your elbows in as you're doing it. Don't waste any excess energy with your stride, that sort of thing. And so we used a disc profile to help inform how we coached athletes. And that disc profile is something we use at HubSpot now to coach employees on a regular basis. But I think recognizing that not every human being is built for the same type of coaching or development is critical and something that I'm proud that both HubSpot and Exos share. I think the second thing is um, athletes' performance and exos are very committed to starting where people are. So, for example, uh, when I was there, a ton of the Red Sox trained um, trained at athletes' performance, and as you might imagine, we'd have people from Google and Walgreens and Intel, some of our corporate wellness clients, come in and say, I just want to do Jacoby Ellsbury's workout, or I just want to do Dustin Begray's <laughs> workout. And, you know, Mark spent, I can't even tell you how much time telling people that's not the best place for you to start. Sure. What if you just started drinking one more glass of water a day? What if you just started getting one more hour of sleep? What could that look like? And from my perspective, I think one of the things that tends to happen with company cultures is people want to change everything at once. And people want human beings, teams, and organizations to transform overnight. I think when you focus on doing a few little things really, really incredibly well, big things can happen. And that's something I took from Mark and from Exos as well. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. I, I was super curious and, and wanted to get a sense of what transferability of those pillars have made their way just into how you operate. One of the things also that is just painfully obvious in reviewing the culture code and anything about HubSpot is this focus on transparency. And a quote that I just thought was fantastic that's in the culture code, sunlight is the best disinfectant, which is a quote quote by Louis Brandeis, who was an associate justice on the Supreme Court in the early 20th century. You guys clearly have this commitment to transparency. What does transparency mean to HubSpot? Yeah, absolutely. I think transparency gets kind of a, um, it, has a it has a cool reputation, um, but the buzz around it often isn't met with the work that it actually takes to do transparency at scale. So, when we talk about transparency, uh, we what we mean about that is that when employees come to HubSpot, they should expect to become entrepreneurs based on the sheer volume and quality of information they will have access to. So, for example, on your first day at HubSpot, whether you're an intern, a co-op, or a full-time employee or executive, you have access to all of our board decks. You have access to our management team meeting decks. You have access to um, musings from both of our founders. You have access to what all of our executive priorities are. So anyone at the company at any time can go log on and see what I should be prioritizing this month and hold me accountable for it. And from my perspective, transparency is very much a two-way street. So on one hand, we give employees a lot more context around the business, and we expect them to learn it, use that information, and that, that uh, flatness has huge benefits, right? It means that you can learn from anyone in the company, including their triumphs, but also their mistakes. And it also means that information flow is democratized. So it's not dependent on our executive team to speak from on high to share information with people, which is, which is fantastic. The other side of the coin as it relates to transparency is with great power comes great responsibility. So as someone who's entrusted with key information about the company, we make everyone a designated insider as a public company. You now have a huge responsibility on your shoulders. You have a responsibility to be thoughtful about the business above and beyond your swim lane as an employee. 
you have a responsibility to learn a little bit about how the business scales and grows so you can make informed decisions that actually solve for our customers long term. And oh, by the way, because we're transparent, you also have a responsibility to call people out when they're not living our values, when they're not kind of solving for our customers and that sort of thing. And so transparency, as it turns out at scale, is incredibly hard. People think of it as, okay, they don't have you know offices or they share a few decks every once in a while. It's a commitment to how we run our business and our operating system on a regular basis, and it turns out it's incredibly hard. You know, you get big and you add more offices, and it becomes easy to kind of go, oh, I'll just keep this to myself. I'll keep this on a Google Drive so no one checks it out. And holding each other accountable to make sure that we're really delivering on our promise of transparency is actually incredibly hard work, but it's massively valuable because I think at the end of the day, candidates have so many choices for where to work. And our commitment to transparency and autonomy, I think, are at the end of the day what allows us to compete in an incredibly talent, incredibly uh, volatile and incredibly competitive talent market. Because I think people will always want interesting people to work alongside and amazingly interesting problems to work on on a day-to-day basis. Well, and transparency certainly extends well beyond the confines of all the different offices. I mean, let's talk about Glassdoor just for a moment. The overall rating for HubSpot is unbelievable. I mean, just absolutely incredible. And as I was perusing some of the reviews, I noticed that you in particular, Katie, commented on almost every, if not every single one of the the comments uh, and reviews that I saw. What advice can you share with folks out there as the best way to manage uh, the glass doors of the world when they don't actually have someone that is responsible for culture the way that you are? You know, the biggest question I get about Glassdoor from especially CEOs is often how can we avoid it, right? There's been a fundamental <laughs> change in, in the balance of power. Sure. Your candidates' employees have a huge voice in what your employment brand looks like. And I think a lot of CEOs and executives are reticent to give up their control. They want to hold on to the olden days when you could hand someone a brochure that said exactly what you loved about the company and put a shiny portrait of a super happy, highly promoted employee and basically said, any questions, please sign on the dotted line. And I think the reality is the world has radically changed and candidates and employees have a lot more power. And so the first piece of advice I'd have for people is, this is like trying to avoid the internet. It is a change that is happening, whether you are present for it or not. So you may as well ride the wave and embrace it early. Uh, your employees will thank you, your candidates will thank you, and frankly, long-term, your employment brand will thank you. I think for companies that don't have a culture team, which is a good chunk of companies out there, uh, all you want and all, all I think candidates want to hear is ownership. And so at some companies, that could be the CEO. At some companies, that could be a, an executive who has a real personal passion and interest around this. And at some companies, it may end up being someone who's in a more traditional HR function. I guess what matters most is, uh, from my perspective, is authenticity in the response. Someone wants to feel that they got a human response to their concern, question, or compliment. And then the second thing is ownership. People don't want you dodging any bullets. So you mentioned we're very lucky to have high reviews, but we have some on there that aren't super flattering. And we have to resist the temptation to go, that's not true. I don't know who you are, but this isn't accurate, that sort of thing. We own everything that's on there, good, bad, and ugly. And I think employees and candidates really feel that ownership. And as a result, we feel the responsibility and indeed the duty to deliver on that feedback. So I think those are the two pieces of advice I have. I don't think you have to respond to every single review. I also don't think you need to devote. I think people talk to me a lot about how much time it takes. And the way I look at it is, 
These are things that people are saying about your company with a massive megaphone in their hands. Uh, what better use of time? If I'm spending you know, 20 minutes a day responding to those reviews, I think that's actually an incredibly valuable use of my time versus a waste of it. That's, a, I think, a great, great point. No, no question about it. No question about it. You know, you, you talked a lot about, um, you know, being present. These things are changing. You can't avoid it. You know, clearly uh, along those same lines, one of the things that is rapidly changing is just the way people think about work. You know, I, I believe personally that this whole, whole notion of work-life balance is a bit of a fallacy. I think it's about integrating all of the different pieces of uh, what we spend our time doing in a 24-hour day and are those the things that are really leading to the outcome of living a happy, meaningful, fulfilled life. How does HubSpot, how do you, how does the team at HubSpot think about this notion of balance or perhaps work-life integration? So I think you're spot on. I think that the old notion was that work and life were battling with one another for attention. I think the way we think about it at HubSpot is uh, you should love your life and you should love your work. And hopefully you're an interesting and amazing person in both areas of your life. and You don't feel this tension or need to choose between the two. Part of the reason why we give people autonomy and why autonomy is such a core part of our value proposition is we want people to build their work around their lives, not the other way around. And so if you're an avid triathlete and want to train in the mornings and come in a little later, HubSpot wants to give you the autonomy to do that. And if you're a working parent who's really passionate about coaching your children's sports team and you need to leave at three every day to make that happen, that's something we want to be a core part of our employee value proposition. So I think at a lot of companies, they do kind of exception-based rules. So you would have to go to your manager and say, can I do this? What would this look like? That sort of thing. At HubSpot, the overarching policy is use good judgment. So it makes it very easy for high-performing employees who deliver great value to our customers and to our team to truly build uh, their work around their lives versus the other way around. I think the other thing we're seeing is um, instead of divorcing life and work and making one miserable and the other, you know, wonderful and revitalizing is that to your point on health programs, we're really making a vested interest to make recharging part of our employee value proposition. So tech has a huge burnout problem. I think it's time we look in the mirror on that front. And HubSpot really wants to be part of the solution there versus part of the problem. So do we demand a lot of our employees without question? Do we invest a fair amount of time and energy in making sure that they can recharge whatever that means to them? Absolutely. So I mentioned our Healthy at HubSpot program. What that consists of is we have an on-site gym. We bring in trainers uh, four times a week to do group workouts. We believe that's great for your body, but also for your soul and mind to connect with some other people, meet some other HubSpotters, and get a great workout in the process. Uh, but we also have a health coach who will do one-on-one -on -one consultations to any of our employees globally for a half hour. And basically, she'll talk to you about your diet. She'll talk to you about your hydration habits. She'll talk to you about your sleep. She'll talk to you about kind of your overall mindset. Um, to use that word as it relates to exo, exo, she'll talk to people about kind of a challenger mindset and how you're recharging, how you're prioritizing self-care. And we see massive adoption with that program. It's hugely successful and impactful, and I think we'll continue to see that. We also run workshops on things like stress management, healthy eating, um, immunity, all that kind of good stuff. And so the idea, hopefully, is that HubSpot offers a ton of different tools to help arm people to live healthier lives, including our core benefits package, but also including perks like the Healthy at HubSpot program. 
I want to go back to transparency just for a moment. And one of the things, and this has been my experience in working with just hundreds, if not thousands of organizations throughout my career in this human capital space, which that term I despise, but I've yet to come up with a better one. I should just call it the people space because that's what it really is, is that when you live in such a way that you are putting out things like your culture code, that Glassdoor is blowing up with mostly positive reviews, that it, when you're so clear in who you are and what you stand for as an organization, that as a potential candidate, somebody who's desiring to be a part of a culture like what you have, I begin to understand as a candidate exactly what might be the right way to present myself, answers to interview questions, the appropriate uh, follow-up process. Just you're so out there and so transparent with who you are that you are essentially giving the answers to the test away. That said, and, and clearly it's a, it's, a, it's a better way to live for an organization, but that said, how do you really cut through the BS to determine whether or not when you're sitting down, whether it's you or an, another hiring manager, when you're sitting down with a candidate, how do you know that they're just not full of it and they're really somebody that's going to be a part of protecting and strengthening what you've built from a culture perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. I think interviews are an imperfect science, as is, uh, as are a lot of parts of the candidate experience. So, uh, you know, a few things. One, we use data to help inform our decisions. So hopefully um, from the places where we've gotten it wrong, we're using data to course correct it. Um, two, our interview process, yes, involves a lot of speaking by candidates, but it also involves a lot of behavioral um, kind of interviewing techniques. So, for example, if you interview on our sales team, one of the things we're watching for is the degree to which you effectively listen. How actively do you listen? How actively do you take notes and that sort of thing? And as it turns out, if you're not a person who's good at listening, it shows up pretty early on in the interview process. Um, and so from my perspective, the advice I always give to candidates is show, don't tell. So rather than telling me nonstop about how interested you are in culture and marketing or blogging, show me what you've done that kind of furthers that meme. And it doesn't have to be, you know, 20 years of experience in a field, I just believe strongly that people's actions speak a whole lot louder than their, their words. And so that takes two shapes. One is their actual work product. So I look heavily at what they've done, the results they've achieved. Um, and two is I talk to people who have worked with them before. And as it turns out, it may be very easy to BS your way through a 20-minute interview or a phone screen. I think it's much harder to win over the trust um, and recommendation of people who have worked with you historically before. So from my perspective, the questions and the process, and to your point, giving away the answers ahead of the game, um, actually does two things. One, it makes sure that we're actually testing what matters versus the degree to which you're good at just making that impression. And as you mentioned, and kind of BSing your way through things. Um, but two, it makes sure that our hiring managers and recruiters aren't just going through the motions. I think one of the things that happens, we've all been there, is if you're interviewing a candidate, you know, doing 12 interviews in a day, by the end, you're just kind of like, tell me about your biggest weakness. You know, the, the interview questions are incredibly boring and frankly, not that valuable in context. Right. And so part of the, part of the, um, 
inherent value proposition of having a lot of that stuff on Glassdoor is you expect your hiring managers to go, okay, what's the next question we're going to ask about how someone adds to our culture? What's the next question we're going to ask to gauge how passionate someone is about the inbound marketing space? What's the next question we're going to ask about how someone would resolve a conflict on their team? Um, it forces us to get more creative, and to be honest, that's part of our special sauce. The question I get all the time from people is, if you're that transparent, aren't you worried someone's going to copy what you do? And so I think ultimately companies need to believe in their ability to execute and in their team's ability to consistently innovate to continue to improve. Because honestly, if you don't, whether or not you share all your answers up front, you're going to get disrupted by another company who's willing to raise the bar every time they interview a candidate. And I think at HubSpot, I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of people passionate about getting that right, continuing to improve and continuing to iterate. Uh, and that transparency holds us accountable for that. So let's talk just for a moment about uh, a little bit more about your background. One of the things that jumped out at me was, at least from an undergrad standpoint, you have a liberal liberal arts background. Boy, try and say that fast a bunch of times. And yet here you are working for a tech company with so much emphasis around STEM in education today. You found your way into leading culture for a pretty well-known and incredibly successful tech company. I'm curious, do you think much about, and I know you've got your MBA from, from MIT, but from, from that foundation of your undergrad in liberal arts, have you found that to be a benefit to the role of culture ambassador? Yeah, absolutely. I think STEM education is incredibly valuable and in obviously the way the world is going. And so um, I think there's going to be a lot of great innovation that happens there and a lot of great students that emerge with STEM degrees, which is good for business at HubSpot and good for a lot of those students because it'll be highly lucrative and highly valuable careers. With that said, I think uh, the advance of STEM doesn't come at the expense of liberal arts education, in my opinion. I think eventually there'll be a greater intersectionality between, between the two. But until that happens, I'm very grateful for having a liberal arts degree because I think liberal arts degrees teach you to be curious um, and teach you to be inherently open-minded. So when you're studying a bunch of different disciplines, you inherently don't identify as I'm an X person. Uh, I am a person who only studies Y. And so from my perspective, when I was at Bates, I was lucky enough to be an American studies major. And so I took African-American studies classes. I took English classes. I took political science classes. I took history classes. I took economics classes. And when you learn to be curious about all those things, even the things you're not best at, I think you get really comfortable early on with ambiguity. And you also get really comfortable with uh, understanding how to tell your story in a way that's compelling. So uh, I think a lot of folks who have non-traditional career paths like I do, people ask me a lot kind of how do you get unconventional jobs? And I think you can't put the onus on their hiring manager or company to understand how you could fit. You really need to do the work to go, okay, here's how my skills could apply. Here's a PowerPoint I put together, a deck that I put together on what this could look like. Here's how my experience marketing an athlete's performance could help inform HubSpot. Um, here's what I know about the tech space that could be relevant. And so I think being a liberal arts major has distinct advantages for folks in tech. And one of my personal passions is getting more folks in liberal arts to consider careers in tech. I think one of the um, unintentional downsides of some of the STEM uh, messaging has been that fewer and fewer, particularly women, think tech is a place 
for them. And so one of the things I hope to do by talking about my own liberal arts degree is to make it clear that if you're a person who runs on adrenaline, who likes tackling tough problems, who isn't afraid of technology, and who is inherently curious, Tech is a great place for you, um, and if you are an English major as an as an undergrad at a liberal arts school, all the better. We'd love to have you. I love it. I love it. Let's talk just for a minute personally. Uh, a question. So I, I was driving into work this morning with my wife. We decided to carpool today, and she was listening to a podcast, somebody else's. I don't recall who. She said, hey, Brian, why don't you start asking some of your podcast guests what one book has had the biggest impact on them as a person, whether it be a professional book, it could be a, a pleasure book, but start asking each individual, what's the one book? And then maybe at the end of you know 20 episodes or so, you could release a blog post uh, with all of those details in it. And so it would give the audience, uh, you know, those who are, appreciate the spirit of the podcast, uh, a list of really interesting books. And as you know, she had mentioned, I said, yeah, that's a really good idea. And I thought after I dropped her off, well, why not start with you? So is there one book amongst all the books you've, I'm sure, devoured that has been the one that you can point to that's had the most profound impact on you as an individual? There is. So your wife is uh, speaking to my heart here. Uh, one of the things I did when I was at Bates is I got certified to teach. And so I taught eighth grade English. Um, as part of my certification as an undergrad. So this is the stuff that completely warms my heart. And to be honest, my taste in books uh, aligns with my previous experience as an eighth grade English teacher. And so you're also saying that my wife is brilliant is what you're saying too as well. I, I am, and I would suggest you do that too every day. No, for, for me, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird has had the biggest impact on my life. And the reason is... Um, First of all, I'm a huge Harper Lee fan. I love her story. I love the story of the book. Um, but I also think it's a great reminder, especially as it relates to racial tension, uh, that things don't get better without people speaking up and being brave enough to do something about the problems they see in the world. Uh, and I think it was a good mirror for someone who had had a, you know, relatively lucky, fortunate um, upbringing that not everything is perfect in the world and that you have an obligation regardless of where you sit to help address and fix that. And then to Scout Finch being an outspoken, um, you know, female character that early on, I think was just a reminder that especially as a woman in tech, you're going to be someone who is uh, forced to have hard conversations, needs to be brave and fearless on certain occasions. Uh, and I think Scout Finch is one of my favorite literary characters of all time. So I still go back to Scale of Mockingbird. I read a ton, and I'm, I feel very lucky to be a voracious reader, but To Kill a Mockingbird still has a special, a special place in my heart. I love it. I love it. Well, and now, you know, for what it's worth, you have the distinct honor of being the first guest of this podcast show to have been asked, what's the one book? So when this blog post comes out, uh, your name's going to be at the top of the list. How does that feel? Fantastic. Uh, it feels it feels great. And to be honest, if one more person reads To Kill a Mockingbird who somehow managed to skip it early on in their school career, I hope they're in for a real treat and I hope they enjoy it as much as much as I'm lucky to. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Katie, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. And, and might I just also say that I don't know if you're a coffee drinker or not, but your energy, your just overall spirit, uh, I, I find it incredibly attractive. Like it's, it's one of those things that having conversations like this, 
I'm able to feed off the energy of the guests oftentimes. And uh, just the way you've approached this uh, has really kept me on my toes. So I hope it's been as enjoyable for you. It's really been a ton of fun for me. And I know that our audience out there is going to get a ton of value. I mean, especially given the fact, listen, at the end of the day, culture, I think, is still viewed by most as the soft, fluffy, squishy stuff that's impossible to measure, hard to define, uh, and it, it doesn't show up on the P&L as a line item, uh, either you know above uh, in the revenue area or below in the expense area. But I think you and I both know that um, everything today can be copied, ripped off, duplicated. What can't be done is the way in which things get done in an organization, the way the work gets done, the way people treat one another, the way people treat the clients or those that they serve, and those rituals that's the glue that holds an organization together. And frankly, when the you know what hits the fan, that's 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 what helps an organization persevere and make it through. And and that's culture. Absolutely. And I think to your point on energy, I certainly appreciate the compliment. I am indeed a, a coffee drinker, but I also subscribe to athletes' performance belief in working out. Uh, so I'm a pretty diligent morning workout person. But I would say when people comment on that, I often say to them, you should have a job that you're excited to get out of out of bed every day for, regardless of whether it's in the culture field or not. You should have a job, and people deserve a job that they are truly and deeply excited and passionate about getting out of bed every day for. And I think you and I are both lucky to have those. I would just encourage people who are sitting there listening to this going, gosh, I wish I had a job at a company like X or a company like Y to go out and get a job that truly fits your life and what you love, because I think it makes it a whole lot easier to have conversations like this and it keeps your energy level uh, high. And frankly, I think you're spiritful and even on tough days. Amen to that. And as far as we both know, uh, this thing called life, I think we only get one shot at it, so we better make it count. Absolutely. No question. Katie, uh, uh, just such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, of any, course. Any, Thank any, you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Have a wonderful day, and uh, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to connect again sometime down the road. That sounds great. Thank you again for having Thanks me. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed hearing our interview with Katie. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this episode or want to listen to more shows of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.